Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wildfowl Podcast. I'm your host, Skip Knowles, Editor-in-Chief of Wildfowl. I'm here with Big Jim McConville, our National Sales Manager. And um, he's my co-host and hero. And uh, God to all who are uh, people out there in Duckland, uh, at least at least in my mind. Isn't that right, Jim? That's what they tell me. It's tough to live up to it, hanging around you experts, but I do my best. <laughs> you are... You are no doubt switching gears finally from thinking about uh, plucking geese uh, to, to cleaning walleye. Isn't that right this time of year? Yes. Well, the goose season's wrapped up. Uh, a lot of birds in the area. Unfortunately, we didn't connect to a lot of them. And now we're excited about the walleye opportunity on Lake Erie. Living on the Ohio shores of Lake Erie, it's probably right now on planet Earth. Uh, the most desirable spot to throw a lead-headed jig with a twisty tail or you know, troll a crankbait. There is actually millions and millions of catchable walleyes sitting along the shores of Ohio waters of Lake Erie. My friends in Michigan and the Detroit River have about 5 million walleyes they get to play with in the Detroit River with the massive migration of the spawn going on. But I'm really jacked up to find out about dogs and learn a little bit more about the favorite things in the field that are black and fuzzy and make me look like a pro every time. I tell you what, I, I hunted as a young boy without a dog, and now as a, an old adult, long in the tooth, I really wish to God my parents would have had dogs when I was little. It makes the hunt for me, and it's incredible to watch their personalities develop, how smart they become, and the only thing they want to do for Big Jim McConville is please them. All the dogs I hunt behind and the dogs I own have been fantastic in the field, and they give me more than 100% on those cold winter days when birds are falling in ice water. So I'm excited about today's podcast. Can't wait to dive in. Should be a great topic about hunting dogs. 100%. That's why we're here today as we launch the podcast season for Wildfowl. We're kicking it off with some exciting news about a whole new ancillary, complimentary, supportive podcast for the Wildfowl brand headed by our own Nathan Ratchford. It's called the Do-It-Yourself Duck Dog, and it's a compliment, uh, a column that he started to write for us in Wildfowl Magazine in the print magazine on all things uh, for the retriever owner, the passionate dog man, and Nathan is nuts for them. Um, I, I quickly realized when he was uh, helping host our podcast initially, that if we didn't spend at least half of every podcast talking about retrievers, Nathan wasn't going to be that happy. So um, he he had the idea and, and seized the initiative of doing his own to support the brand. And, and uh, it's uh, going to be off to the races pretty soon. We're going to have him launch one here in June, hopefully. And uh, Nathan... Tell us, what was your um, incentive behind doing this, your vision for Do-It-Yourself Duck Dog, how the column in the magazine came to be, and what you hope to do with the podcast that'll keep um, me and Jim listening to our own sister podcast under the Wildfowl brand every every week? Yeah, thanks, Skip. I'm, I'm super excited about it. Um, it really stems more than anything from my passion around these dogs. Like you said, you know, I could listen to Jim talk about his dog. You know, you, you're talking to me about Luna quite often. I, I love hearing about people's dogs and how that fits in the picture um, as a conservation tool, as a family member, as an aspect to the hunt that just makes it in every way better. Um, and for me, my biggest, you know, the biggest reward for me is seeing things come together in training and putting that time in on your own and actually see those, those pieces in isolation at like you're working on these different things and then actually see them come together in a hunting situation is, is so rewarding for me. It's like holding a banded bird, you know, actually seeing like your dog connect the dots and just figure it out. And, uh, in the blind is just extremely rewarding. And, um, for me my real passion is doing it yourself. And I, I, I use that term lightly because really it's just gathering from the resources that are out there whether it's at Wildfowl, whether it's at our sister publication, Gundog Magazine, or the vast majority, um, or vast new resources available for retriever owners um, on online training platforms and everything out there. It's just a great time to be training your dog yourself. Uh, there was a time, I'm sure, that was the resources just weren't available. They weren't easily accessible. And in this day and age, they're there. So it's just a column that's more than anything from an end user standpoint, like myself, I'm talking to you guys, not as an expert, but as someone who's failed, figured it out, triumphed at times and is there with you, you know, in the trenches trying to figure this out. 
So bringing that, those, those resources from experts down to earth and also providing a support community that's going to be stemmed on uh, Instagram and, you know, um, fielding emails and creating a support community that we figure these things out together. Um, and I'm really excited about it. I got this young puppy, he's six months old now, and uh, I'm starting from scratch with him. So yeah, I'm, I'm very excited about it and very excited to bring this uh, resource and community to the Wildfowl platform and brand. It's going to be awesome to watch your dog develop and how it learns and what you figure out as the dog owner and the master of the dog. And I'm excited because, I mean, you know, if a dog misbehaves in a field, and this is purely my opinion, it's not the dog's fault, it's the owner. And I have always fessed up to that, owned up to that, because certain people have different expectations of what the dog should be doing or how it should be doing. And, you know, that dog isn't sleeping with them. That dog isn't getting fed by them. You know, it's, it's an extension of you. And um, I know personally with my dogs, I've had two black labs. We're at the tail end of our second one, and she's 10 now. And um, what I wanted out of her, she's given to me. And, um, you know, they want to please you. And once they get up to four and six, when they're in the prime of their wheelhouse, it's all, all systems go. They want to make the best experience for you. So if you, you know, study the course, the only problem I've ever had owning a dog is my children had a different insight. My wife had a different insight than me. And that's very confusing to the dog. You don't want to mess a dog up. And the dog loves my kids. The dog loves my wife. And the dog loves me. But you got to be very, very regimented at the household that everything's uniform and the language is the same from everybody. Absolutely. And I, I think one of the biggest things for me with, um, you know, this passion around DIY training was my Labrador. He's, he's now seven and a half years old. And I got into hunting later in life, you know, and um, he was already a year old. Just my buddy who I took hiking, camping when we started training. I mean, before that, he was knew how to pick up a tennis ball and bring it back and he'd spit it out at my feet. So I had to start there and teach him, like, I don't accept something unless it's put in my hand. You know, and then we went through every training resource available to Wild Rose, to uh, Cornerstone, you know, newly, you know, Gundog Magazine. I was a, a avid reader and consumer of Gundog and Wildfowl before I was a part of these brands. And now I have him handling, casting him on blinds. I mean, he's every way polished retriever. Um, and to me, that is like more satisfying than anything you know, seeing where my dog is now to the work that we put in together as a team and what he's taught me more than I've taught him, I'm sure. Um, and to your point, Jim, like they will give you everything they have and more. And seeing that on every, every retrieve is just, it's special for me, but it's, it's amazing seeing that team effort. And it is very much, we're like coaches out there more than anything, you know? Right. I like using dog coaching instead of dog training because it really is. We're just there to like direct them on what's already there, you know, all that natural ability and uh, seeing that come together, man, it's just, to me, it's, it's so rewarding doing it yourself. So I'm hoping to instill that same passion and excitement around getting out there and training with your dog and seeing that reward um, at the end of the hunting season. So super excited about it. Here's, Real quick, can I, here's really what you guys quick. need to know about Nate. <clears throat> he has a, he's living, I think, in an apartment or a tiny house right now. He's got, a lovely, he's got a lovely apartment. Two dogs, a, two dogs. He's got a lovely new fiance. And he has a big old boisterous Labrador, all boy Labrador. And you can go on and tell him um, what else you what other projects you got going, Nate. Um, yes. And your dedication. Here's what he's what he said to me. It's like we, um, when he was in the process of moving and worrying about how he was going to juggle all those three elements under his roof, he said, oh, some people, um, Skip, you guys all, you guys all want dogs. He goes, Skip, I, I need dogs. And, uh, and I, that really resonated with me. So now when I see anything really amazing about sled dogs in Alaska or anything um, about any kind of hunting dog or some obscure breed, I immediately think of Nate. And I think that that tells you guys how much uh, he has made an impression on me on his love of canines, all of them, but especially retrievers. I appreciate that, man. Um, for me, dogs have been a lifelong obsession and passion. And it's just 
in the past seven years developed into hunting dogs specifically. But I w- before that, I was around working dogs with my brother. He trained canines for, uh, you know, state troopers and law enforcement. I've always had dogs. Um, one of seven kids, we always had several dogs at the house. And um, I carried around an AKC dog breed book that was bigger than me since I was six years old, brought it to every... <laughs> Every doctor appointment, I had to know everything about every breed, their name. I used to have my brother quiz me on them. It's just always been a passion of mine. Um, so yeah, I have this seven and a half year old lab. He is, he's a, he's a big monster and he's now it's, it's interesting seeing the relationship change, you know, at this point and at his age, he is just like my old reliable best friend. How you old know? is he? How old is he? What color is he? American or British? Break it down for folks. And his yeah, he, Tell us a little bit about his personality. He's got a lot of it. Yeah, he's seven and a half. He's a chocolate. He's a mix of um, English and American. So he's got a blocky head, but he's got a lot of go. Um, he's a little whiny in the blind, but that's the only co- complaint I have from him. Um, but he is just all full throttle still. I mean, I hunted him up in Maine last year, a week straight. I mean, he was just, just, yeah, he's still got a lot of gas, but he's got a fantastic off switch makes him around the house. Just great. Um, and he's been a good influence on this new puppy I have. He's a five and a half month old, uh, Deutsch Drahar, which is a German wire hair bred through a uniform German testing system. And, um, he's a really interesting dog, very different. Um, this is my first pointing slash versatile breed, but they're incredible in the water, but their utility and the way they test them is, is much different than a Labrador, which is heavy on marking everything to do with their eyes and memory. And these dogs are all nose oriented. So it's a lot of search behind like, you know, a wounded duck. Um, but he's showing a ton of natural ability and retrieve. And I've already worked on memories with him. Um, some different stuff and he's got a lot of retrieve. So I'm very excited to see how I could train him um, both from what I know, training my Labrador and also learning different aspect aspects of developing that, that nose, you know, and working with both eyes and nose, like my lab, I'm pretty much dropping a pin and casting them to the general area and then letting them, you know, take over from there. And this it's, it's very different, but um, yeah, they're, we're in an apartment right now, two bedroom, and they're really, they're really behaved fortunately, but it takes a lot of work. I'm big on place training. That's part of what we covered in our, um, our most recent installment of DIY duck dog, uh, steadiness in general, teaching patience and place training. I, I start that with my puppy when he's, as soon as I bring him home and just progressively build time and expectations, um, always backing up when you're, when you see that you're pushing them too hard, cause they're just a baby still, you know, you got to make that place a fun place to be. It should be fun standing still and then good things happen. And later in life it becomes, yeah, you stand still, or you're going to get that retrieve. Right. Um, so yeah, I'm big on place training. Um, and I think that makes apartment living bearable for anyone who thinks it's not doable, but you definitely need some genetics with a good off switch, but yeah, the, those two, um, Sawyer will be, would be my Labrador that I mentioned and Wyatt is my five and a half month old. So Sawyer and Wyatt are my pair. Jim, can you believe how much what he was describing there (laughs) sounded like parenting? Jim's got a father of a couple of amazing boys and I've got a, I got a tribe of my own, but he's like knowing not to push them too hard, knowing when to back (laughs) off, but being firm and place training. I was like, Wow. He, he could be a teacher on the side if this doesn't work out for him. <laughs> well, that's great. I mean, I think it's awesome that he's, you know, he's embraced it with both arms and, you know, he's trying to figure out what's the best and ultimately the dog's going to produce and he's got good pedigree in both of them. It sounds like, and it sounds like they're doing what he wants them to do. So, you know, start writing the book, you know, start, start the journey. Um, yep. What I was going to say earlier, Nate, you talked about finishing a retrieve to hand with a tennis ball and just not spinning it out on the floor. Uh, my oldest son now is 31 and he was probably 11 years old and we were on a state draw duck hunt and we had our first black lab and she was awesome. 
and he shot a gorgeous drake wood duck. I mean, a mounting bird, a bird that would be a blue ribbon specimen at a, at a taxidermy show. She goes out, makes this unbelievable retrieve. We're hunting in water, not in a hide. We're in, you know, chest waders. We're in cattails. And she comes right up to me. She's not even three feet from me. And she drops the duck. The duck hits the water and disappears. Oh. I'm like, oh, my God. So my son goes, won't she find it again? I said, we'll try. And we never recovered that bird because we were like in thigh deep water. And that whole scenario that I just explained to you is so raw to me. It feels like it happened this morning and duck season isn't even in. I mean, I can't, you know, not forget that. And then some of the things I did and I didn't read a lot of books. I watched people and took the advice from, you know, different people that own dogs. I did a lot of blind retrieves with my first one. So my first dog's at home. I come home from duck hunting. I have two young boys running around the house screaming. I said, leave the dog in the house. I go outside and I take a four foot piece of rope cord tied onto a, you know, a dead duck that I shot that morning, a mallard or, you know, wood duck, whatever. And I come off my porch concrete, walk into our yard. I was zig, I was zag, not letting the dog see me go make a circle, go over to a pine tree in the back corner of our property, cover the bird with pine cones, come into the front do door. The do dog's all excited, jumping up and down. Kids are laughing at me. Walk her out on the porch, heel up. And she'd heel right on my side, sit there just like a show dog. And I'd put my hand over her head and I'd say, fetch him up dead, fetch him up. She'd jump off the porch, stick her face in the grass, and she'd sound like a little piggy at the farm. <laughs> And she would follow my whole track to the backyard all the way over to where the bird was buried. And I really super praised her, got super excited. So later, when she was older, we'd go out on dove hunts. The guys would say, hey, I knocked a dove down. I can't find it. It's in the weeds. I'd go, just give me a direction. And I would walk her over. And the main focus on that whole exercise with the dove was to make sure the wind was right to give her a chance. And I would give her, you know, fetch him dead, retrieve, and, you know, she'd take off. And then I talked about wording with you earlier. My wife and my kids didn't have the same relationship with our my dog that I did because of hunting. So every now and then they would tell her dead dog or dead bird in the house. She would stop, stand up, and she looked like static clean out of a dryer. The hair would be sticking off her body. And I told those guys, don't mess her up. She knows what that means. She's expected to go find a bird. So it was just a fun thing to watch the dog develop and become the dog that I wanted. And she never really let me down. And one thing I figured out about dogs, never, ever, ever second guess their nose. Their nose doesn't lie. So he or she's doing something and putting an effort, that bird was either there or is there, and they're going to find it or that bird has moved off because it was wounded and could move through the grass. So. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's cool hearing that because um, so much I think of blind retrieves is, is both trust in you as the mm -hmm. handler, I think so much of, of blind work is trust in you and confidence. And that's exactly what you did there. I mean, like your dog is just trusting that when you say there's something out there, he's going to find it, you know, and putting something out there for him to find every time you say it just builds up their confidence. And like you said, yeah, it's just every time you take them out, they're like, gotcha. Right. I'll, right, I'll be right back. And one thing that comes to my mind right now, and I'll share with you guys, and I'll be quiet. I always took my dog to ponds and, and out in the lake, big water. And I always had my dog retrieve. I got the build-in back. I could get my dog to go back. And what I figured out at a young age with my dogs is when the dog was trying to recover a tennis ball or a bumper, and the dog was looking back at me and maybe swimming to my immediate left, and the bumper was to the left, I would encourage her and extend my arm out and say, over, over. And then she had the reward. She'd find the bumper. So I learned at a young age, take advantage of the, the motion or direction that the dog's going while you're working with them to enhance whatever commands you want to give your dog. So if the dog's going left, the bumper's left, and you can see the dog, and the dog can see you over extending your left arm. And that helped immensely because later in life, I could steer her. I could yep. stop her. I could make her go right. I could make her go left. And it was my arm. She would look at me and I'd point her, you know? So I thought that was a huge thing that a lot of people probably miss out on or didn't know about. Yep. Take advantage of the direction of the dog when the dog is going the correct way. And, you know, this 
reestablish that the dog's doing the right thing, you know, confirm that. And there's, there's so much too. <clears throat> we talked skip in our most recent installment about this was centered also around like food, like, you know, tell, teaching them place training around food, because when they're puppies, it's all about food, you know, mm-hmm. like they're so food motivated, especially Labradors. My goodness. I mean, you have to slow them down, you know, um, but everything's, that's the biggest reward early on is food. And what I did with him um, a while back was I would actually get two food dishes, right. And put them up against like a fence line or something like that and put some treats in each one. And that started to teach him directions. So when he was in the center, I would teach him that one. And then he'd get that reward in that dish. Same thing on the other. And like, again, teaching that around food. I think, I think people like, not every aspect of dog training needs to be this two hour endeavor at the end of the day. You know, you could teach so much around mealtime, especially with puppies in 30 seconds, you know, but yeah, it just had me thinking about directionals in general. I could go on. Oh, and he, makes I, me, know you, yeah. I know you could go on forever and I'm laughing. Yeah. You guys see me smiling. It's because I'm thinking of so many different levels of dogs. I've, you know, I've hunted with guys who could sit their dog down at 600 yards with a soft, quiet whistle and wave them either way. Then I'm laughing at my first lab who was exuded incredible confidence right from the start. She was a total rock star and had this bionic nose who would be a proof test for other dogs. Like, Hey, Fisher says, says there's no bird in this bush. Get hope over here. She'll find out if there's a bird in that bush or not. And sometimes she'd come out with two in her mouth. She was just that special dog, but I'm laughing because like Jim, I learned to like meet dog, ghetto hand signal her right and left you know and and she you know she obeyed me and it worked and it was good enough for me i didn't need to cast her 500 yards i was just a water duck hunter you know and if there's scent on the water she's she did she was enough for me and so much a a big part of it is knowing what your expectations are and what you need Um, but i remember i was hunting once in italy for pheasants and these italians you guys would die laughing i don't think they've ever heard of any electronic collar over there or um sending them away to school or any of that they would just (laughs) wave and gesticulate and babble in Italian it like with the their their arms flailing and they're violently yelling at their dog to go this way and that way and they all did it and that's all they did and that's how they did it and it didn't didn't work very well <laughs> they would cast them with these gesticulations it was so darn funny but uh I'm off in the weeds it just made me smile to think of the different levels I've seen and and but you know everyone would at all those levels was pretty well happy with their dog most of the time I was curious, Nate, we'll talk a little bit more about your dogs and then we'll move into some of these topics because it does bring one up. One of your future topics is uh, our draw hires, our versatile breeds, you know, right for you that you're going to launch into your your do-it-yourself duck dog podcast series with. Um, tell me a little bit about the differences you've seen. I know versatiles, you know, will go grab a coyote or a muskrat or fight a nutria any day of the week and they're Labs are so mission specific. I'm just curious about Chris about a few of your insights and what you've seen so far. And by the way, that drawhar, I don't remember his name. Sawyer is beautiful, but the drawhar is absolutely gorgeous. And if I'm mispronouncing that, let me know. Yeah, no, I, it's um, yeah, you're pretty close, drawhar. Yeah, I think that's what you said. Yeah, you're you're good. <laughs> Most people like even who've heard the term a thousand times still mispronounce it. So you did very well. <laughs> But, I just um, went. Off, I just went off what you just said. <laughs> I, I, I can only see how it's spelled. You know, Drathar or whatever. But yeah, no, they're. Um, I think. I mean, it's it's still really new to me. Um, but I think the biggest challenge is as a versatile breed, you're developing all these things simultaneously. So you're trying to develop pointing instinct, retrieving instinct, tracking instinct all together, and that's a little challenging with a retriever. It's just so much around being still and sitting in place. And with the versatile, you need to balance that between questing and searching and pushing out and gaining confidence. Like you can't, I've been just kind of teaching him like um, to like formally heal Um, for a while. I was just teaching him basic leash manage, but I didn't want him to become too sticky at my heel that it became an issue for he didn't have confidence to push out. So these little nuances that I had to work through and figure out with this new breed and new type of dog. Um, but yeah, like I said, the, the system is so heavily around, uh, cent- or centered around the dog's ability to search so that that notion also extends to the water. 
So the water work that they do is usually behind like a wounded duck or simulating a wounded duck on the water. So they'll actually track a duck on water, you know, and actually produce the duck um, dead or alive for the hunter to either finish off or, you know, just bring it back to their hand. As you know, labs are just super centered around sitting there in place and watching things drop and remembering exactly where they are. And I think in that way, labs are far more efficient, um, especially if you're hunting in a group or in a big group, um, that they can just go perfectly, grab that bird, bring it back and drop it and then carry on. Um, a drawhar, I think, is more efficient. I don't want to say efficient, but I think is more useful for a wounded duck, even though labs are totally beyond capable of that. I think they're more sight oriented than the drawhars are nose oriented. Um, and as you know, I mean, I've, as you guys mentioned on blinds and things like that with labs, they still do it extremely well. But I've seen drawhars, I mean, free search a pond, you know, for 20 minutes tracking a duck, just casting out, you know, 500 yards away, just following the scent trail of the duck. It's pretty amazing to see. Um, so in that way, I think um, labs are just really the, the specialist. And I think the versatiles are really, they could be very good at a lot of different things, but they need a lot more work and exposure to those tasks in order to become very good at it. So I think they're just naturally more moldable. They're just like this flexible putty that you could, you know, if you take them on a ton of birds and you avoid ducks, they will just be really, really good bird dogs. Um, but they're naturally inclined to pursue pretty much all different types of game, whether that's uh, fur game or feathered game. And in Germany, they actually like the average German hunter will hunt more foxes in a season than they probably will hunt pheasants in their lifetime. So they're very, very fur oriented. Um, predator management uh, over there is is really big, and mm -hmm. that's useful too. As as we all know, predators put a, a big hit on all wild game bird populations, waterfowl, game birds, everything. Um, so I think that's a useful thing. But not a lot of people want their dog, you know, getting into it with a coon when they're pheasant hunting, you know. Um, so they're not the dog for everyone, but for someone who likes to mix it up or someone who lives in a place like where I do in Pennsylvania, that we have a little bit of everything. It's not fantastic for one thing. It's a dog that you can go out and get into stuff. Um, they'll run rabbits and actually quite a few of them are both sight or scent loud. So they'll open up on a rabbit track, like a beagle, or <laughs> they'll visu they'll visually see a rabbit and open up. Um, so, and that's also rabbit hunting and rabbit tracking is a big part of their testing system too. So they're very, very good for rabbits. They're good for ducks. They're good for birds. And they're very, very good at blood tracking. So it's just a all around utility dog. That's just, um, very moldable. Like I know people out West who run them on lion mountain lions and bears, and they run them with hounds successfully. They have great noses, but they just need more exposure in order to become very good at something. So yeah, I think that's a big, big overview, but if you have specific stuff that you're wondering about the difference uh, differences, um, be more than happy to ask, but that's kind of the general overview. You know, it's hard to beat a Labrador um, for duck hunting. I mean, even like, and again, drawhars also have a variation of coat. Some are thicker, some are shorter, um, but yeah, it's just, it's very different. It's hard you know, comparing them without, you know, it's just very, very different. It's like a, I don't know, a Subaru and a Tacoma. They're, they're different vehicles for different uses, you know? So we don't want to be a spoiler. You're going to go into a lot of that in your series on do yourself duck dog wildfire. You're going to talk about um, whether a versatile breed is right for you. And uh, you covered a lot of ground there, but you, we can get a lot more detail i'd like to know more about their temperament and hear some more stories oh, yeah. a good friend scott haugen talked about his dogs because of the trailing factor you talked to just disappearing for up to 15 minutes so their friends are, his friends are all rolling their eyes this has all been in wildfowl 
And uh, then they'll still come back with a duck because they're not as visually oriented. It's fascinating stuff, man. Tell yeah, us they're very, they're very independent to your point. Mm. You know, I wonder, does that come with a, I'm dying to ask that question. <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and open that can of worms since you brought it up. Are they, are they more like a husky, you know, stubborn to the point of um, independent to the point of stubbornness and difficulty to train because they really don't need you to sleep out under the snow and, you know, <laughs> find something to eat or are they sweet natured and, and easy to train as well? Like a lab. I think they're all different, um, especially drought hards because drought hards were um, Scott, as you mentioned, Scott Haugen, he's got poodle pointers. Drought hards were a combination of several different breeds, um, poodle pointers, stuckle hards, Deutsch Kurtzars, which are German short hair pointers and Griffons. So they created this kind of super dog in Germany. So with that, there's, a lot of variation between certain lines um, and certain character traits come out more. Um, so I think they're, they're definitely all different. They're definitely more independent than a Labrador. Um, that's for sure because their labs are bred to work cooperatively with you like every step of the way. And that's why they make really good working dogs, not just for, for hunting, but also as service dogs as search and rescue uh, police work um, diabetic alert dogs. They're very, very connected to their handler and they kind of are bred to work with you on tasks or, um, you know, objectives. So the German dogs in general, definitely more independent. Um, but I think the versatiles draw a nice balance. Like they're not an English pointer that you're pulling out of the back of the truck and you're not going to see them till Wednesday, you know, they're a mile away and they don't care if you keep up or not. That's again, a generalization, but versatile breeds have to also work with you to a degree on certain aspects. Like it's very, there's a lot of emphasis on obedience and cause they use like, they do a lot of driven hunts over there. So putting your dog on a down stay, there also is a lot of working with you. So I think versatiles actually draw that nice balance between independent and cooperative. Um, I will say that this is like one of the smartest dogs that I've ever been around. I think that's one thing with these dogs. They're very, very smart. Um, a little bit more primitive for sure. Like they're just like more pack oriented than a lab is. Um, they're a little bit more standoffish with strange dogs. Um, but they're so loyal to you. I mean, I, I take him even around people and like, he's social and outgoing, but he's like, where are you? Even as a puppy, he's like, where are you at all the time? He's very, very loving and around the house. I mean, he is the sweetest puppy. I mean, mm. wants to be in your space constantly, follows me around like a little duckling. Um, he's definitely more vocal than most labs have been around. So it takes a lot of like, you need to teach him like that doesn't get you anywhere. You know, the whining, stuff like mm. that. I'm trying to get a hold on, on that early, but that again, also, you know, his parents were both scent loud. So they'd open up on a rabbit. So you have more vocal tendencies in general. He's that also works, super. That works out real well in a two bedroom apartment. <laughs> yeah, no, fortunately he's not a deuce spark, but he's like, I open the back of the kennel and he's waiting to get out and he'll whimper a little bit, hmm. but he's starting to understand that like that doesn't, you know, that slows things down for him. So it's better if, to get what you want to not make that sound. Right. But he's no, by no means a nuisance barker. He's like he'll people on the hallway or even when he sees other dogs in the hallways, he's totally fine. He's quiet. But um, yeah, definitely a little bit more uh, just intense. You know, he's just like, you know, he's already tussled with a porcupine at four months old. <laughs> you know, it's just a, it's a different dog. Um, but I really, I really, really like him. He's he's a lot of fun. And. Um, I think a lot of people do make them out to seem like this monster, you know, <laughs> that no one has any business owning. And I don't think that's really accurate. Um, I think they're real, they're, they could be really, really sweet dogs. And um, yeah, he's, he's been cool, man. Jim, I bet you've had a lab like my, my current Luna. Sometimes I wish she'd be a little more standoffish with other people and other dogs because she can be all over them in a, in a bit of a handful. Oh, sorry. We'll go home with anyone. I mean, he's, he's the most social dog there is, but it's funny in certain situations, especially with my fiance, he's a good watchdog. Mm -hmm. He'll, and he's got a bark, like a Rottweiler on him and a head, like a Rottweiler. 
So he's enough of a deterrent that I want, you know, just mm -hmm. something that if someone's on the other side of the door, they're thinking twice about it. And that's, that's all you really need is just a heads up, you know. My first lab was a female and and she was the go home with anyone dog. I lost her one time when she followed some kids down the street, uh, got her back to a newspaper ad, if you can believe. And she had a broken leg <laughs> being hit by a car, but I ran a lady mm. through a bunch of drills to uh, assert that it was my dog. And she followed some commands and couldn't believe her eyes when the dog did everything she said. It was really, really neat. But um, it's the only time I lost her is because she would run away with anyone. But then, um, Four years later or so, she rounded a corner and became this watchdog, you know, growling at intruders and barking and, and the watchdog that I needed, though she'd never bite anyone. But she changed. No training all by herself. There became a more protective female. But let's uh, talk real quick and cover. We'll start wrapping this up. We'll uh, talk about some of the uh, topics um, you want to cover in your uh, June 2nd launch of do-it-yourself duck dog you sent me a list here do you want me to go down them or would you like to repeat them do you have it yeah yeah i got them up here skip okay. um let's talk about what people can look forward to yeah we're going to talk about uh how to incorporate steadiness in daily life as we kind of talked about a little bit on this podcast that was one of the articles that we covered in uh the new column at wildfowl um and that's again just centered around place training little things like going out the door uh, waiting for food, how to just incorporate that patience early on in a puppy so that they figure out the more that they're standing still or calm, they get what they want. <clears throat> um, we're also going to be talking about how to vet a breeder. Uh, it seems like everyone and their cousin is breeding dogs these days. Um, so thinking about how to find the right puppy, what to ask them, what to look for, what might be red flags uh, to find the right dog for you. And that again comes from personal experience and just talking with a ton of breeders um, from my natural curiosity around dogs and also my indecisiveness <laughs> and, and picking the right dog. I went back and forth on getting another lab or getting this new draught that I mentioned. Um, I know I'll always have a lab, but ultimately I decided on the, the draught. But again, just kind of going off of experiences and talking with other people and what they've been through. <clears throat> um, we're also going to talk about, as we mentioned, Versatile breeds, breaking down in more detail the differences um, between traditional retrievers and versatile breeds and why they may or may not be the dog for you. Um, they definitely gained a lot of popularity. And uh, yeah, just kind of talking about the reality around only one that could make them the perfect fit for you or not. Um, we're also going to talk about the new age of DIY dog training, hoping to get our, our good friend and contributor, Tom Dawkin on here. <clears throat> he wrote a very interesting article in our summer issue about using drones <clears throat> for training. And I thought that was really insightful. It was the first time I actually had, had seen that. And, uh, it was very interesting how he talked about how they could be used and, as well as just the general advances in technology and how we could apply that to our training. So hoping to get them on there for a really insightful conversation. You can really see um, from that column Tom wrote, you guys all need to check it out um, in the coming issue of Wildfowl Magazine. Um, that's our June issue, right? Yes. Um, he talks about the use of drones. And I was thinking about what Jim said earlier about how his dog would kind of backtrack him to the blind retrieve. We've all seen that a million times because I quickly figure out and, but they're not tracking a bird, they're tracking you when they go to 300 yards back to where you drop this off. And he's using drones to drop them in the, in the distance with no scent trail to the bird. Now he has to trust your blind. It's, it's a fascinating look into training, do-it-yourself training, the use of drones and technology, and into the mind of that man who has trained so many hundreds of dogs and the creativity that he still has to come up with new techniques. That was fascinating. So I, I look forward to listening to that one while on do-it-yourself duck dog. Absolutely. And to your point too, Skip, he actually, and one part of it too, talked about using um, it for drags too. So not just like not creating no central, but then actually having a string with the dummy and creating a central that has, as you mentioned, no human scent in it. Right. So yeah, scent. just scent. that's right. Exactly. So I thought it was just, it was genius really. So really excited about that conversation. Uh, we, just need, we just need a drone that will drop your dog off, you know, over the bird. That would be a pretty <laughs> <big> drone. But... <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they have that out there. <laughs> but, um, and then we're also going to talk about 
some of the online training resources that are available. Um, as I mentioned earlier, it's just, it's like, there's no better time to train um, a duck dog yourself in this day and age, but the resources out there, both from a print side and also online um, and different training platforms um, through Gundog Magazine, um, through Cornerstone Gundog Academy and several others. So we're gonna kind of give a, a breakdown of some of the top ones out there and how you can get your hands on that to, to start your work. Let's see, Jim, yeah. got, Jim, does he have you all fired up to get more dogs? Maybe a draught, maybe a white yellow? I, I, I think what I'm gonna do- Chocolate. After you know, listening to Nate the last thirty minutes, I think I'm going to get two. I'm not just going to go buy one. I'm going to go get two. There we go. Let's go. <laughs> yeah, it's it's tempting. It's funny because uh, one of them can suck up so much of your time and resources, especially if you have small children. Because for the first bit, it is like adopting a new child. You know, right from the potty training on through to everything. Um, but uh, it's uh, yeah, I admire you for taking on two at the same time. But you've got the. That's another great topic for you to tackle down the road to overlap. At what point when your dog is starting to see retirement on the horizon, do you attempt to get a new pup? And can you do it with different breeds? And that whole dynamic will be a great one for you. I'm sure you'll tackle it at some point. Absolutely. Yeah. And also having a, a you know, an older dog to teach the right habits to the young dog, you know, whether even with these guys and they're totally different breeds, but just, you know, my older dog Sawyer is such a good example around the apartment to be calm. And, you know, he's been, I think, you know, a very good, and, and the flip side, you have a dog who's too riled up, you know, maybe wait a little bit until he's, he's settled down in order to, you know, bring a new puppy in the mix. So they have a good example to follow because that energy is just kind of contagious. So if you're, you know, your living space is like a library, everyone's going to treat it like that. But if you have the, you know, dogs pacing around and there's just this constant, um, you know, energy there that's elevated, it, it could really, especially on a young puppy, it's just kind of infectious. So, you know, and he just taught the young puppy to swim recently. You know, he was finally warm enough here in Pennsylvania and brought in the same spot that Sawyer learned to swim. And he went out and that, I mean, an older dog is so good for a young puppy's confidence on certain tasks that seem intimidating to them, like swimming or like learning to push out and that you don't need to be right next to, you know, me all the time. Right. So yeah, lots of things to cover. Super, super excited about it. Um, as an end user and someone who's constantly interested in learning more myself every day, I hope to, to provide a microphone to people who are equally as interested and want to talk about it and want to engage about it and want to learn from people who are way more experienced um, with all the resources out there. So very, very excited about it. I'm super pumped. You never stop learning. Um, we, we, we have edited hundreds and hundreds of dog columns on training and retrievers and health and uh, every, every aspect of dog ownership for a waterfowler. And I still have never heard of, even like some of the things I'm recently dealing with with my Luna, she started losing her coat, her tail's hair started falling out. I never heard of hyperthyroid with a dog. Um, it causes them to lose hair. First, her coat kind of lost its sheen. Uh, and then the tail started bleeding and appeared to be getting infected where it was getting naked on the end. And I, all my friends, lots of people have dealt with and I've never read about this in any dog column, but I talked to many, many people who own labs who have seen the bleeding tail that won't stop. And they all say, wrap it, wrap it, wrap it. So I made her a vet appointment out of concern for it looking infected and the hair not growing back. And I wrapped it loosely. Uh, she immediately took it off. I wrapped it tighter, took it in. They said that I'd overdone it. And the end of her tail where it was uh, had been infected was getting worse quickly and would have to take a couple inches off of her tail. This was very traumatic for my family. I've still never read anything about the tail bleeding problem, the hyperthyroid problem. And um, I, she had a uterine problem two years ago. Um, it was just an infected uterus. It had to be removed. And no one had ever made it really clear that if you don't, to me, in all that editing, that you know, if you don't breed a dog by a certain time, you need to have them um, spayed, basically, or you face a higher risk for a lot of things. There's, so you never stop learning. And then uh, online last night, I saw a friend had run over his tail, beautiful Labrador, the tail of, of his dog with a four-wheeler, and he probably taped it all up real tight. And I, that was a red alarm fire in my mind. No, 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 you have like 24 hours to get that off, or you have 
done risk of really damaging that dog's tail. So you never stop learning. Um, I love your passion. You're very young, Nate, yet you, you're, you have that lifelong accrual of knowledge that comes with being completely obsessed with something very young. Yeah, you have a humble attitude towards uh, learning from people who, like Doc, and have been doing it for much, much longer. Uh, I'm very excited for the column, though. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for trusting me with this and for giving me the opportunity to to bring this excitement and this community to um, to Wildfowl and to our our passionate, you know, subscribers and and followers. Um, I'm really, really humbled and excited about it. You know, I can't wait to just have more opportunity to talk dogs. It's going to be fun. <laughs> awesome. Talk dogs. Yeah. It's uh, like big Jim said, it's, it's a way to grow the brand in a whole new, a bigger direction. And that's what we're all about here at Wildfowl. And you're going to have a, a nice print component as well as a podcast. And everyone's going to be able to follow, see it all coming and going on social too. And my highest compliment is I love you. Uh, what Jim said earlier was, and I've also heard from doc and whenever you get little short-tempered with a dog or disappointed or frustrated. It's a direct reflection on something you're doing, not the dog. Let's all try and remember that as we enter the heaviest part of the training season. And I liked how you phrased it, dog coaching, Nate. That's fantastic. Instead of dog training, it's dog coaching. Now that I'm a soccer dad, um, I appreciate (laughs) that even more. Uh, Big Jim, you got any, any final questions or comments for no, this has been fantastic. I'm really excited. I just think about all my interactions over the years with our dogs and, you know, you live and learn by experiences and sometimes your greatest failures are your biggest learning curves. And I remember not having water for my dog and being in a situation where it was warm and there was no water available. And I felt like a dirt bag. I felt terrible because I've been thirsty, you know, playing a little bit of college sports in my day and They didn't let us drink as a form of discipline. So make sure you have water for your dog. It's always good to have a little extra food in the truck with you. Um, You know, and and I think you'll learn as a dog dog owner, once you start to do the things you love to do, if it's quail hunting, if it's grouse hunting, like I always got a kick out of grouse hunting, even with a dog tipping me off in the heavy timber, I still couldn't hit the damn things. I still couldn't get them, but the dog (laughs) did her job and, she let me know that there was one in the neighborhood and I still couldn't knock them down. But so dogs are, you know, a unique thing. And I'll tell you this, since I've had two labs in my life, I can't remember my life prior to my dogs. When I reflect on things in my life, I always think of my dogs and hunting trips. I don't think about not having a dog. So I think for everybody that's listening today, I think you'll get a lot out of this and you'll learn quicker than I did. And uh, it'll be a great experience to, uh, you know, watch your dog grow. Absolutely. I just wanted to, I just want to add too. it's cool. Um, putting it in perspective. I mean, dogs were the first domesticated animal, right? I mean, over 25,000 years ago, they estimate. And that first original purpose was around hunting, you know, and think about what we're that relationship that we're stepping into in a way when we go out and hunt with our dogs. You know, and that connection, Jim, that you're talking about that we all feel between them is is really it's an ancient one. And that that's a pretty cool thing to be a part of in this modern world. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to put that in perspective because I think that's pretty cool. You know, no, that's, that's awesome. Yeah. Nate, I was dorking out last night. I was reading a book called The Dog That Walked with God, and I thought of you, of course. And it's about the Cato. <laughs> it's a it's a creation story based on um the beliefs of the Cato people. And now um I don't know, I think they're completely disbanded tribe from hundreds of years ago in Northern California of all places. And their creation story has a man walking um the traveler they call him walking with a dog, going around, creating the world. It's a beautiful story and incredibly well illustrated. So that's going to be your Christmas present if I can find one, but I love it. (laughs) Oh, you will absolutely wet your pants. Illustrations are beautiful. And Jim, you're absolutely right. The way you've been thinking of your life in terms of by dog sections, (laughs) a friend of mine, when I was a a disaster and losing my first really great lab, um, he said, that's exactly what dogs do is they come into your life and they define an era. And I look at these three little kids I have at home and they have no, no world without Luna, whether she's perfect or not. And that's why I could never send her off. By the way, Jim, you talked about the family expectations, could never send her off to a 
to boot camp uh, like I wanted to. They weren't hearing of it, man. So no, she- my wife, my wife put her foot down. <laughs> I've been married 32 wonderful years and she wasn't having it. She said that dog's going to be 365 days in our house and she'll get in the field 40. So deal with it. And I'm like, okay, honey, whatever you say, do you oh, want me to do it. the dishes or clear the table? I'm all in. <laughs> How but, uh, they they yeah. come in your life and define it. We'll leave it with a little bit of humor. Nate, that's the only question we really want to know is how in the hell do you survive in a, an apartment with two big dogs and a beautiful young woman who would never, ever, ever, they're going to look back on this or she would never let you do this 20 years from now if you're still together. I hope by the grace of God you are. But what's the key to survival, man? I think for me, um, you know, she came up into my life and I knew right away she was a dog person. I mean, a real dog person. Cause I had at the time, we'll go into this later down the road, but I had a overly energetic Springer Spaniel puppy who I placed back with the breeder and he had a peeing problem and she came in and he was peeing all over the floor and she was down on the ground petting him. I was like, I'm going to marry this girl. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. That's so perfect. You know, she, she loves the dogs just as much as I do. And she also understands, um, and supports the structure around the house. And she's a real dog person. I mean, she, um, she had a big, powerful German shepherd and it's part of the reason why I love her. So I think the key is just having a a wonderful woman, you know, who, who puts up with my ridiculous obsession and constant indecision. I mean, how many times did I talk to you skip about, I think I should get a lab. I think she get a draught. I went back and forth for months. Oh, you, have no, you have no idea what she put up with on that end. I mean, I had a deposits. I mean, it, she's a saint, but I love <laughs> her. I love her and I know she uh, supports me. So no, it's wonderful. And we yeah. support you, Nate. It was all the editors in, in both titles, Gun Dog and Wildflower, frustrated, trying to push you one way or the other. Will you make up <laughs> your mind? It was an ongoing saga. That's just fantastic. But we support you in this endeavor, both on Wildfowl Magazine and any other bit of Nathan dog universe we can get out of you. And the podcast is going to be a big, exciting part of that. Everyone tune in for do yourself duck dog here in another month or so. And uh, no matter how you spend your off season, we hope uh, it feels like a short one. You've laid out a lot of exciting plans for the coming year. Me and Jim are going to get into um, a conversation with a awesome young snow goose guy. He's hunting him in Alberta clear into May. And we're going to get up there and, and chase birds um, at the very last stage of the migration before they head to the breeding grounds. When they should be at their absolute wisest, but we hear they're at their absolutely most vulnerable. And uh, we'll be talking to you soon about that. But don't miss the do-it-yourself duck dog coming up. And stay tuned and check out more at wildfowlmag.com. Thanks for listening.